0: Hello and welcome to the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. This is the show where we talk about all things transportation, anything that gets you from here to there. I'm the traffic anchor and transportation reporter for Denver 7 News. Jason Loomer, if you would like to be a part of the show, you could give me a call on the listener hotline. You can contact me on any of the contact links. And, of course, if you wouldn't mind rating the show, I would appreciate that as well. All the contact links are in the description as well as that phone number in, of the description of the show. I don't know if you're curious like me about the Hyperloop. I, I think it's a pretty fascinating deal. And, and I was just wondering the other day, what is the status of the Hyperloop? Uh, and because Do you remember when it was all the rage? Well, we haven't heard much about it over the last many months, at, at least no mainstream news about it. And I was just wondering where it stands. Is the Hyperloop still alive or is it dead? There's a group of students at the University of Colorado who are still working on the viability of a Hyperloop system. It's called the CU Hyperloop Project, and I invited the project lead to be here on the show and talk all about it. Max Balasubramaniam is a junior studying for aerospace engineering and is also pursuing a double major in music where he plays percussion, and he joins me now. Max, thanks for joining me here on the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast.
1: Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me.
0: Before we get into the Hyperloop and where it stands, let's talk about Max for a few minutes. What what made you interested in aerospace engineering and, and specifically the Hyperloop?
1: Yeah, so aerospace engineering really comes from, there was, ever since I've been like a little kid, have just loved rockets and just loved, loved space. So known I wanted to do that for a while, and then I've just sort of um, been on that route for now a while doing uh, aerospace engineering in college, which is a really fun time. Um, Getting into Hyperloop and specifically the team here at CU is sort of an interesting story. So um, I came into college right in the middle of COVID, so in 2020. So as you can imagine, during that time, there wasn't a ton going on. So that first week, there was this thing called engineering immersion, where you basically see all the teams around CU, and um, at that point, Um, CU Hyperloop just had a presentation, and it seemed really interested, so I sort of dived in. Um, I had heard of the team a bit before that, before coming to the university, and also of the um, competition that they were competing in, which was the SpaceX Hyperloop pod competition for the past few years. And so I was semi-acquainted with the technology and what they were trying to do, but then I'd sort of just been a ride from there, and I've just been along for the journey.
0: But you know, space is is so much different than on Earth. Hyperloop. It, it seems like there there's some similarities there because they're both emerging and advanced technologies. But one is is trying to calculate how you're going to get from from here to out there and stay out there safely, and the other one is to how
1: to get from here to there fast. Yeah, you'd actually be surprised how similar they are. Um... Space is very complicated. There's a reason why um, rocket science is like used as a really complicated thing in everyday culture. But believe it or not, um, Hyperloop technology and transportation, and then especially what we're doing now on um, digging tunnels is even more complicated and we're on the same level because you're still dealing with really large systems that all have to work. And in a lot of cases, you're also, you have to have a human out of the loop on controls. Like an astronaut doesn't fly the spaceship, so that's similar to what um, we're doing now. Where and hyperloop technology in general.
0: Why? Why do you need a pilot then if the humans not fly in the spaceship?
1: <laughs> yeah. Um. It mostly there. If if something goes wrong,
0: yeah. it becomes yeah.
1: That that's where that's where that comes.
0: We're going to talk more specific about uh, the actual hyperloop and all of that coming up in just a bit. But but you and the team of what I think nearly thirty students right have been working on this for some time. And how many years overall have has the project been going on? Have you been involved in the project? And what have been your roles in the project?
1: Yeah, so, yeah, the teams right now, just about 30 people, just under, around there. Um, it fluctuates to, um, month to month. Uh, the te- it was started in 2017 um, by one of, my, one of my good friends, um, Cole Kenny, who is, who's the founder. And for the first three years, they competed in the SpaceX Hyperloop pod competition where the goal of that competition was make a vehicle that you put in a tube and you saw how fast it could go. Um, In all three years of that competition, the team was um, top 50 in the world and did a bunch of cool things there. But the last two years, the competition and what we've been doing has really switched over to boring technology specifically. And we've been doing something called the not a boring competition. And the objective of that competition has been we want to dig a two foot diameter tunnel as fast as possible. Um, And the reason that sort of came about is at the end of the day, you can go really, really fast. But if you don't have a place to put a tube, you can't go very fast for a long time. So in that in the boring side of the competition, um, no pun intended, the team has had a lot of success. So this in the 2021 edition of the competition, uh, we were top six globally and um, top three in the United States. And in there, we were also one of only two teams that were able to successfully do a full-scale test of our tunnel support system. So like the system that holds up the tunnel once it's been dug. And then... Now we are going at it again for the 2023 competition, which is coming up pretty soon. Um, And we are, again, top six. So um, we have been confirmed as a top six. And we're going to be going down to the um, competition um, coming up. And we're going to have a fun time and see and try to test our machine full scale and compete against the other um, best universities in the world at this and try to see what we can do. My guest is Max
0: Balasubramaniam. He's the project lead manager of the CU Hyperloop project, and we're talking Hyperloop and also digging tunnels. You're making it sound like having a tunnel is a better or more viable option for a Hyperloop tube for the vehicle to travel in than it is above ground. Is that true? Is it more viable underground than it is above ground?
1: I, I, think, you, I think eventually you have to go underground. You can do initial tests above ground, but you inevitably run into a bunch of problems, including but not limited to the topography of the Earth. So if you want to go through, like, mountain ranges, you can't really go up and over mountains at 700 miles an hour. That's going to... You're going to be pulling a lot of Gs. Um, But then even more beyond that, a lot of above-ground space has been developed, and there's not a lot of it. So if we want to put tubes throughout the country or the world, there's not a lot of space, especially moving into cities. So it's sort of why you see, like... Um, trains in cities went underground it's a similar thing to there where if you want to do it at scale and actually be able to have a legitimate transportation option you have to eventually go underground and go to a system that is sort of separated from the current development of the world
0: it, it seems at least to a layman guy like me I'm i'm no rocket scientist like you are that what happened in Turkey, what happened in, in that part of the world, we have fault lines here, too. And, and any shift in the earth, especially underground, and I, I would think with, with the Hyperloop tube, you're going to run into some kind of a depressurized system, a, 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 a system where it's not holding its, its structure. Isn't that inherently dangerous to have people going 700 miles an hour in an in a underground tube?
1: Yeah. um, But I would also say it's (laughs) definitely um, on the tunnel side, specifically there have been, we have been able to, as a society, figure out how to tunnel underground in earthquake prone areas. Like that is um, for example, like the boring company's initial tunnel is in the middle of LA. Like that is, that is a very earthquake prone area. Right. Um, I would also argue that especially like the if you have a tube suddenly get pressurized, you're going to have the same issue above ground that you're going to have underground with or with earth movement. So I don't think that's that the pressurization worry is not necessarily just an above ground thing, but I, and underground, you can see the tunnels tunnels have been proven to be safe in um, earthquake prone areas. And we have been able to develop that technology um, for that sort of um, application.
0: So, so I know this is a big overarching question here, but, but in theory, and you've been working on this, as you've said, for many, many years, is the Hyperloop still feasible? Can it be done on a large-scale basis or only in a good, controlled, small environment like building a, a tunnel
1: only two feet long? <laughs> um, I would, I would argue yes, but not anytime soon. So not in the next, like, two three years um you we saw virgin hyperloop they did a manned test i don't i think it was last year it might have been um 2021 but they did a test fairly recently where they put people in a pod and they went 150 meters and so that like the actual pod technology and the tube technology is starting is starting to exist but it's the infrastructure that you got it that you got to figure out because if you want to have it useful, you got to get hundreds of miles of track and hundreds of miles of tubes so that you can actually reach those speeds and have it be different and where than a normal subway. So for that to happen, you really, I would say just about a decade or decade or two out, but before that could seem to be become a feasible, feasible like option for um, high-speed transportation.
0: So, so it's in that, yeah, it's a great theory and, and it's, we would love to see it possible. Just maybe the technology that we have now, we're not able to solve the future problems with our current technology. That'll be future technology that will solve those future problems. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds about right. I'm speaking with Max Bala project manager at the CU Hyperloop project. We're talking about uh, digging tunnels as well as the Hyperloop uh, situation. Is it technology that's more feasible for human cargo or cargo cargo where it's better for from here to kansas city or to chicago to send uh freight instead of on a truck you send it on the hyperloop rather than putting you know risking you know 100 people's lives
1: in the tube um i i don't think freight will ever really adopt that high speed of transportation because you even see now right like air freight is still not commonplace for most shipping. It's still via trucks. When we can go two hours in a plane, like we can do that today. And we have been able to for a while, but it's just not economically viable. Really, that high-speed transportation is going to be most applicable for human transportation. And I do I don't and I think you're going to see something similar to um sort of planes today, where the majority of planes are are human transportation but then there are a few um freight um freight planes especially as you look at um like shorter distance um flights so like that that's sort of what i would see long term for that sort of very high speed transportation
0: so so let's say there was a tube that was connecting dallas and denver mm-hmm. and it, it would take let's say uh, maybe an hour and a half you would think something like that in in travel time is, is that
1: I do not, unfortunately, have an exact estimate, okay. but that's, that's, that sounds about on the order All of right, magnitude. Let's say
0: it's about an hour and a half. Uh, and, and so you really could have Amazon personal deliveries where uh, somebody has a <laughs> fulfillment center in one place, actually uh, take a load of goods get on the Hyperloop then if it's just for people and then uh, Hyperloop down to Dallas, deliver it to that guy in three hours and then be back into Denver and do the same thing over again, right?
1: Yeah, you could. Again, yeah, I don't think that's going to be an economically viable solution because <laughs> there's, there's, we have seen how to do that sort of same-day delivery with current technology and I don't think that having that really, really high-speed transit necessarily changes... It's um the high the majority of freight. Yes, there are going to be like applications, like for example, like organs, like getting organs across the country. That could be a very good application of the technology. But for most freight, like ordering something off Amazon, I feel like most of us are already good enough with two days shipping <laughs> yeah, right. or now one day shipping, right. where it's like we don't really need it in like thirty minutes. So uh,
0: how how do you get
1: over the scariness factor if it's going
0: to be used mostly for human use to it encourage somebody. I'm, I'm always thinking about my mother-in-law and, and to convince her that, Hey, we, we want to take you to Chicago or we want to take you to, uh, uh, St. Louis, get in this metal tube. That's going 700 miles an hour. And, and how can I reassure that she's going to be safe?
1: I, I think it, it's, it's very similar to a plane, right? Um, you, you have to, you have to prove it. You have to prove it. You have to have the proven safety track record um today flying is much less dangerous than driving but people still have the irrational fear of getting on an airplane and flying across the country so some of that right you're not going to be able to get rid of but you have to you have to keep it safe and you have to have the proven um safety records a lot of that the scary thing right now i think that people are probably worried about is the pressurization of the tube yeah that is going to be something that you just have to figure out and make sure that any leaks, you don't have catastrophic blowouts, like things on that nature so that it is a safe technology and safe for people to get on.
0: Then is it one of those systems where instead of you you have a pure vacuum, could you have a partial vacuum? and it, So you're not at 100%, but you're at 50% and it's good enough.
1: Yeah, you could. Um, there is not nothing's ever really a pure vacuum on earth anyway so it's just how much of a vacuum do you really want to create and you're totally right that you could have a less strong vacuum because really what you're trying to do is just get rid of air resistance so the less amount of air there is in the tube the less energy you're requiring the less hot the tube gets everything gets easier in a vacuum but yeah so you could do a partial vacuum there's there's some I would assume some physics limitations of how high you can physically get that vacuum before you get like heating, um, especially with um, the wall effects of the tube. But beyond that, yeah, you could, There, there is a lot of room to play around with um, on, on that front. Uh,
0: you know, again, not being a, a rocket scientist, uh, it aren't, doesn't the current mix of air, of, you know, nitrogen and oxygen and, and whatever else is in our atmosphere here, it, isn't that a a more dense mix than, let's say, filling the tube up with helium? Could we just do that and then send, you know, all the high-talking people all the way through the tube to Chicago?
1: Um, <laughs> tactically, yes. Yes, because air resistance is, um, it's a function of the density of the atmosphere. So yes, you could do that. That will never happen because <laughs> helium is so rare. Like, if you're even, like, I don't know, Helium is in short supply for MRI machines. You're not going to be able to fill a 700-mile-long tube with it.
0: <laughs> okay. And, and, and obviously, living at altitude as we do, we know that the air is less dense here than it is at sea level. So you have to deal with those issues, too, and not, not just uh, you know trying to dig underground in, in uh, L.A., but going from here to Los Angeles. Obviously, you have the terrain to deal with, even if you're underground, but then you also have the air pressure to deal with between here and there.
1: Yeah, it's if you're if you're doing a if you're doing any sort of vacuum system, you can look at something like the space shuttle tires, for example, people, people always wonder how did they not pop? Well, those tires were at like 80 psi. So the actual difference between being in a vacuum where your ambient is like 40 psi and a vacuum where your ambient is like 14 psi, not it's it's a difference, but it's not enough that it makes Makes the system fail, so it's it's one of those things structurally where I don't think the air pressure, specifically in altitude, will be a huge um, impact, but definitely, yeah, terrain going through having to go through stuff, everything from like soft sandstones down to like the sand, the sandy um, rock you might find out by LA to like the hard granite of the Rockies. Like, yeah, you could, you will definitely have to have some overcome some issues to be able to solve some of those issues. Yeah, things.
0: exactly. And, and and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I heard somewhere that those balloons, it's that same air pressure uh, system, the, the balloons that were flying over uh, the United States, right? The the spy balloons, whatever, uh, that this happened. I, it was years ago that uh, Canada s- spotted one. They they shot like a, a thousand rounds into it and it never descended because of the air pressure inside and outside the balloon, it, like the gas, the, the helium or hydrogen gas, whatever was holding it up. It just said, uh, we're good in here. We we really don't want to go out of these holes just because of the way that gas was reacting with the outside air and the air pressure up at, at like 40,000 feet.
1: Yeah, I, I haven't heard of that exact story, but that would make sense as a lot of, especially weather balloons or um, zero pressure balloons, where the actual pressure inside the balloon is the exact same as the pressure outside of the balloon.
0: So you can't just shoot it with a, you know, shoot it full of holes and then it's going to come down. It's not going to. Uh, pop like that, like a uh, like a fabric balloon would, let's say, you know, The Great Race comes to mind, that movie. I don't know, maybe it's too, too old for you, but you know, a balloon movie, how about uh, 80 Days Around the World or whatever that was, where they shoot a hot air balloon where it would descend. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. My guest today is Max Balasubramaniam. He's a project manager at the University of Colorado, We're working on the Hyperloop project. All right, so how do we prevent any kind of sabotage with with a I think that's a big worry for a lot of folks. The wear and tear, the changes in temperature, any forces of nature that that might cause a breakdown, whether it's in the tube itself or the vacuum system or, or anything. Is it better maybe just to uh, uh, just just not put people in there and 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 just just try it? I, I, I don't know, all by itself for a while and just see how it works.
1: Yeah. Especially so on the on the sabotage front, there there are things you can do, but those are I I am not I have not I have not no clue what those are because I've <laughs> I've been working on the engineering side of um, some of the technologies, not not the like social social implications of it. Um, on the weather side, that's another thing that you really gain from going underground because suddenly if you're underground. You see it with um, geothermal systems and stuff like subways. They're not getting wrecked nearly as much by like large, large wind storms or it's like trees falling over. Isn't going to damage your tube because you're underground. Um, so that, that's sort of, you get some of the stuff there and beyond that, you just design the system to be able to withstand everything you expect with a high margin so that you aren't at risk of it breaking Um and and that's just how you do good public infrastructure.
0: Where does the hyperloop stand nationally? Do you know are are, are there companies that are still officially working on it? Is it Virgin? Is it uh, Elon Musk steel? Is it I mean are there still companies that are actively putting money into this thing and building track and trying to figure it out more than what you guys are doing?
1: Yeah, yeah, there are definitely a lot of companies um, in the U.S., um, Virgin Hyperloop is the big one right now. Um, the Boring Company is also doing a bit of stuff with Hyperloop Transit specifically, but they are right now much more focused on tunneling technology. Um, beyond that, though, it's it's there's a lot of small companies, especially in the European space, but it's really not much beyond that because it is a large public investment. Or large, not public investment, large investment to be able to do a lot of those, um, those re- that research and development. So you need to, you can't do it with like a million dollars. You need tens of millions of, or hundreds of millions to really be able to make a s- sizable dent, which becomes sort of an issue for like a random guy off the street trying to like start a company. (laughs) (laughs)
0: right? That's a lot of money, even for the, you know, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and and Richard Bronson's of the world. Yeah. 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 Uh, Where in the United States would it be most viable? Uh, Is there a certain part of the country that is more viable, especially if it's underground because the soil in Florida is so much different than the soil in Tennessee than it is going to be in Michigan or up in the, northeast
1: yeah so that again becomes less that's less of a technical hurdle and more of a social hurdle because what you want to do is you want to decrease the time of travel so on areas like within cities it won't make sense because you won't be able to get up to speed but on cities that are just a few hundred miles apart so we're not talking like la to um new york we're talking stuff like la to san francisco like that, where it's like 600 miles, and you can do it. And you can have a reasonable transit time where your total transit time is less than going to an airport getting on a plane going through all security and doing that and going through there. specific, if I remember correctly, the estimated range is best between like three to 700 miles is where it's most ideal. So you're talking areas such as the East coast of the United States, the West coast of the United States, and then really connecting areas like Denver to like Kansas city, Denver to salt Lake city, like those medium short-term flights that are still like an hour flight, but now you're, but you have to get there two hours before you have to spend the inevitable hour after getting your baggage and doing all that. You can now get this down to like, an hour of total transit time, which would be, which is, which saves people a lot of time.
0: I, I think Max, you're being a little naive that, that there's not going to be some kind of a government TSA deal where they're not going <laughs> to let you bring, you know, a, a full size water bottle, uh, onto the hyperloop, even if you're going from, let's say Dallas to Houston.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I could, yeah, you could, I could definitely see that. Happen.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and, and how do you deal with, if, if you're going, if let's say it goes up to uh, 700 miles an hour. If you're going, let's say on a short trip from uh, Tampa to Miami, and you have a, a route that that goes that way, uh, how do you speed up that fast and then slow down that fast? I mean, by the time you get up to 700 miles an hour, it's time to slow down again.
1: Yeah. So that's why the short distance doesn't work is because you physically can't get up to that 700 miles an hour. Um, so really you're, there's, there's limits of the human G's, That they can experience. So, you have like fighter pilots, you see them, they are like trained specially to experience like 10 Gs of force. So, normal people can't do that. So, we're going to have, you have to make the acceleration and deceleration curves pretty, pretty shallow, which is why those short distance transportations just don't really work because you might only get up to say like 100, 200, 300 miles an hour in that distance where you're not actually getting the full benefits of the technology.
0: It almost seems like the Hyperloop is turning into especially in in short these short distances, let's say I'm going from Atlanta to Nashville, it's almost turning into a bullet train. Little yeah. short bullet trains more than an actual Hyperloop with a tube that is vacuumed so I can go a lot faster.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's definitely normal bullet trains are definitely the way to go for public transit. Um, In the United States, especially between close cities, like that is that is unequivocally the best way to do mass public transit. And and do you think
0: that's being worked on? Is it something that you think is going to happen relatively in the next 10, 15, 25 years?
1: I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I hate to be I hate to be sort of pessimistic, but looking at like California, like they've tried to put one in between San Francisco and L.A. And that's over budget decades delayed like this country has not been good at doing that sort of mass public transit so i i don't know unfortunately if we will ever truly see the like european style transit system where you can hop on a train go three hours at 200 miles an hour and like be in a new city like i don't know if that'll ever be the case here
0: Yeah, it's so funny because I think there's a romanticism with a train over, let's say, a rapid transit bus. There's still talk about having, at least, you know, in Metro Denver, we have had the original fast tracks deal where it was building out the light rail uh, and commuter rail around from Denver uh, out to the suburbs. And one of the lines that was promised and never delivered was to go up from downtown Denver to Boulder and then up to Longmont. And they're still talking about this. They have the infrastructure for a a bus rapid transit, and it would be a lot cheaper, but they're still talking about a train because I think people just have that romanticism with a train more than they do with a bus.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, especially because then you're, you're not sitting in traffic when you have the inevitable Denver two hours of traffic on 36, so yeah, like...
0: And it's probably going to be the same with any kind of a Hyperloop system. There, There's going to be a romanticism, I would think, over that over, let's say, even jumping on an airplane. Even if you could do it regionally from you know, a smaller airport like the Rocky Mountain Metro Airport up there in Broomfield, and you would fly to, let's say, Albuquerque. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, what you said you guys are working right now more, less than less on the Hyperloop actually thing and more on the uh, tunneling thing. So, how is that yeah. going? And what are some of the challenges that you have faced or had to overcome so far with, with your tunneling projects?
1: Yeah. So, tunneling is hard and tunneling is expensive. That's the big thing. So, right now, if you want to tunnel a mile in the United States, you got to, it normally costs about four to $500 million. Um, we are we do not have that type of money. We are (laughs) (laughs) college students, and even (laughs) yeah. So we're operating on a shoestring budget right now. We're just under a hundred thousand dollars that we've been able to fundraise, which has been hats off to our team for being able to pull all that in. But even there, so we're competing against teams that have like million dollar budgets. So that has been one of our biggest challenges. Is in the in engineering right you you can have money, you can have time and you can have really good talent and we have been really fortunate that we have really good talent because we don't have a lot of money and we don't have a lot of time. so that's so we've been toward, sort of shoehorned into doing some really innovative ideas um one of the other problems just becomes inevitably it's it's a lot it's a lot of stuff that you just that hasn't been done before so one of the things that we are really trying to do this year is steer underground. So we're currently targeting a 20 meter turn radius with our machine, which allows us to do a really tight turn that is just unheard of in the tunnel boring space. And that hasn't been done. So we've had to come up with both the new control systems and adapt stuff from other industries and then also have to use some innovative ideas to make everything fit because we are, we're small. Like we're two feet diameter that sounds, but we're like 13 feet long, but you are forces that we're experiencing like at our max expected depth, which is just, just over six feet down. We're expecting over 15,000 pounds of soil to go on our machine. So having to design for all that, and then also having to put a giant motor at the front that can dig all that dirt, Um, that's been a, that's been a challenge there. And then just constructing the machine. Like we've, we've, we've had a fun time right now. We're, we're in the middle of construction and, um, testing, but there's, there's a lot of, you don't know what you don't know until you, until you find out you don't know it, (laughs) which is an interesting, an interesting saying, but like, it's totally true. Like you, you're going to find the problems as they appear. So having to solve those and really come up with solutions on the fly that will work and at the end of the day we're just we're just following physics principles more than anything. We're not we aren't we aren't experts who have been doing this for like 20 30 years. We've we're relatively new to the field, but with that we're bringing a new perspective. So our team is made up of engineers from all over the college. So we've got aerospace engineers, mechanical engineers, we've got civil engineers on our team. Uh, we've also got a bunch of um, computer science um computer scientists who are doing a lot of our software development. So we have this sort of hodgepodge of ideas that when we really put our heads together, we're able to solve these complex issues. But more than anything, it's just it's figuring out the scale and figuring out how to do everything. While save on a shoestring budget. (laughs) Well, well, look, you got Coach
0: Prime up there right now, so maybe he can do some uh, name, image, likeness uh, deals for you guys. (laughs) Uh, You know, he he's good at recruiting, so maybe he can (laughs) maybe he can help bring some money into your program. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. We we that that would that would be that would definitely be cool.
0: <laughs> I'm speaking to Max Balasubramanium. He is the project manager at CU's Hyperloop project there in Boulder, Colorado. As they're working on uh, not really much Hyperloop right now, but more of the uh, the tunnels and digging. Are, are you guys actually digging? I mean, do you have a machine that's actually digging in the dirt? Are are, are you going like? Under Folsom field, or I mean, where are you
1: actually are you digging under the comments? I mean, where are you digging in the in the ground? So right now we're in the development of our machines. So we developed for our twenty twenty one competition, we developed a machine we found out what didn't work. We found out a few things worked really really well, but more than anything it was, hey, this system here doesn't exactly work as we thought. So we went back to the drawing board and we redid it. And now this year we are currently we have a um lab space out in Lafayette where we are actively constructing our machine and then our goal is we're going to go down to our competition coming up soon and put it in the ground and dig and <laughs> So we're not digging at the current time, but we are actively developing the machine and really constructing it. Like we have right now, I think it's just about 12 feet long (laughs) and it's, and so, and we're putting a bunch of stuff in it so that in, in a short period of time, we are able to go down and have a really fun time and and put our machine in the dirt and see how fast we can go. Well, wait, and you know, Colorado, the
0: state has had a long history, 150 or so years Of mining, and and you can (laughs) see the old remnants of the mines as you're driving up into the mountains. Have you researched any of that history? Have you looked at maybe any of the techniques that they used in the past could maybe be used in it now or in the future?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, a large part of our early and initial conceptual design was, like I said, trying to find everything from all sorts of industries and put it together. So, how do you do things? For autonomous navigation. And a lot of that came out of the actual electric car space and the autonomous car space. But then we definitely looked into the mining aspect, especially on the um, cutting, like our excavation system side, where we're like, how do you physically cut dirt the best? Um, What's more, what's really interesting about mining here in Colorado is it's a lot of hard rock. So like the mountain's really, really hard. We are actually more targeting a soft soil machine, so it's been a slightly different um, application. But we are still still have looked into that a lot. Uh, are
0: are your is the development of your machine is it similar? Have you have you taken any? And I, I know they're doing this in Europe because they have a lot of tunnels, road tunnels out in Europe. Have you taken some of their ideas, or or are you, is this truly just? you guys your your whole team just coming up and saying let's let's give this a shot let's give give this a shot and and do you think that there's any commercial application to your machine over the ones that are already out there digging holes
1: yeah so definitely taken a lot of inspiration from some other ton of boring machines but we've also really done a a, a lot of things differently um so one one great example of that is to push forward right new someone for Newton's laws, for every force, there's an equal and opposite force. So if we want to go forward, we need to be able to hold ourselves into the dirt so we don't move backwards. Yeah. So on a lot of big tunnel boring machines, they have these really fancy linear actuators that like lock you into the dirt. Um instead, for us, we g- grabbed four five ton ton carjacks off Amazon. <laughs> we're putting them in our machine because they meet they meet how much force we need and that and that's sort of how we're doing it. So we've taken inspiration, but also changed a lot of stuff um to better fit our needs. So that that's sort of the root of the root of the design inspiration there is like that. That's a great example there. Some other stuff has been really thought from scratch because we wanted to do some new things. Um one, one great example of that is So to hold up the tunnel behind your machine, normally what you'll do is you'll bring in either some concrete sections or you'll have some, do something called pipe jacking, where you just push pipes in through the ground. For us, instead, we wanted to be able to turn, which is really hard to do with, um, and we wanted to turn and be on a small scale, which is hard to do with both of those methods. So instead, what we have is we basically have a dog tunnel where it's a bunch of tarp, that's connected by rings and we've done a bunch of testing on that and it just releases from within our machine and allows us to support all the soil while at the same time um, being on board the machine so we don't need as much ground equipment and then we can turn pretty tightly.
0: One of the greatest examples of a of, uh, success with the boring company is out in Las Vegas, where Elon does have a tunnel that goes under part of Las Vegas. And you get in, I think, a Tesla. You go down to this tunnel. Uh, you get in one of their little Teslas that's still driven by a human. Uh, it's not autonomous, which is kind of funny. Uh, and then they take you through the tunnel, and then they drop you off at, at one spot. Is that what you imagine your project and your team is working towards that we would have instead of just all above ground highways, we might be able to have a series of underground highways as well that could just take you farther instead of uh, local stops. you have more regional stops?
1: Yeah, yeah, no, that that's of the full size technology, like what the boring company is actively doing. That is definitely your application is moving general car transit underground where you can go 150 miles an hour with no traffic. For our specific application, it a lot of it actually comes to utility space because if you wanna we are a two-foot diameter tunnel. Um, if you want to put water pipes underground or you wanna put a bunch of conduit underground, instead of having to dig up a road and take three months to do a construction process, we can dig that hundred feet or two hundred feet in a day. So that's like our technology application is much more along that utility front than the public transportation front. But it's still super in- interesting like there was right right by my um apartment here in boulder over the summer they were doing this construction project to simply just put in a water diversion line and it took a solid 2 months to put a 2 2 foot diameter pipe under the road we could we could do that in a weekend so that's that's sort of the more direct application of the technology that we are currently developing.
0: And then you think could could your technology then be used by a, a bigger company or, or maybe a, a bigger team and then make instead of a two foot tunnel, make a 20 foot tunnel and then we could drive you know vehicles through there?
1: Yeah, yeah, um, for sure. There are there are some things that scale really nicely. There are others that don't. <laughs> So, but the core, the core underlying concepts are definitely applicable to larger machines. Well, Max, what's
0: next for your team? Do you keep working on this? You, you mentioned you're doing this deal in, in Longmont and, and then what's over the next six months, one year, two years, you're going to be graduating here another year and a half. And, and then what? You're like, see ya, I'm out. And then <laughs> you're going to be working in space stuff, aren't you?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, We'll, we'll see what, we'll see what, I have no clue what's happening for me personally, (laughs) long-term for the team. uh, We have our competition um, coming up this spring. So that'll be, that'll be a fun time. We're going to go out there. We're going to learn a lot. We're going to see how we do. And then we're going to probably come back and we're going to see what we can do next year. So take what we've learned from this year and see how we can improve our design and just keep going there and just really trying to both make better a better machine, but also keep, keep making college engineering students really good at engineering, which is a, the importance and the goal of the team at its roots.
0: Right, right. Well, it, yeah, I'm a little bit more pessimistic now on the old Hyperloop. I think it was going to be cool. After talking to you, I, I, I'm more, well, it, it might happen. It's probably not going to happen, but uh, I, probably not in my lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> maybe, maybe in yours, because you're a much younger man. <laughs> yeah All right. sure. well Max a the project manager at uh, CU Hyperloop project. thanks so much uh for being here thanks, thanks for your time and your insights and and best of luck on your project.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me.
0: There goes one smart whippersnapper. (laughs) I'm not old enough yet to say whippersnapper. I did put a link, though, to the CU Hyperloop project and all their information in the description of this show. And so you can see that there. I must say, again, that I'm much less optimistic that in my lifetime I will ever get to ride in a Hyperloop system. Not, not not to get all morbid, but I was talking to one of our young report, morning reporters the other day, and I told her she has about the same number of years alive as I have left. Um, <laughs> I always said, if I make it to 80, that's great. If anything past that, it's bonus time. Uh, but I, I would like to ride in that uh, tunnel, the Las Vegas uh, boring tunnel thing. Uh, the the Elon Musk tunnel in Las Vegas. Uh, I've seen videos, so it, it, I'm sure it's not that exciting. You just go down uh, this, you know, into, into this tunnel, and you get into a Tesla driven by somebody uh, down through a tunnel, and then and then you come out the other side. So, <laughs> how exciting can that be? If you want to share any of your happier comments, uh, of course you can call the listener hotline uh, 303-832. 0217. Thanks again for being here. Thanks for listening, and until next time, I'm Jason Looper, the Traffic Guy. Be safe, and as always, happy motoring.